Welcome to Chicago West Sunday Sermons, where we encourage with the gospel of Jesus Christ, equip within Christ-centered community, and engage with good works. This week, we will hear a sermon from Pastor John Kelly. You can meet me in Mark chapter 7. Uh, before you turn there, I just want to share, as many of you know, um, some of you are new here, it's your first Sunday, so I don't want to startle you, but I came to faith in Christ while I was in prison um, over 20 years ago. Um, one of the things that I often don't talk about and mention is when I came to faith in Christ, um, nobody cared at all. And there was a legitimate reason. I remember talking to my lawyer who was Jewish, and I was so excited to tell him how I just became a Christ follower. And without hesitation, as soon as I got done with a straight face, he said, everybody finds God in jail. And so he had been a district attorney, a prosecutor for 25 years and then he became a defense attorney. So he had about 40 years of experience in the criminal justice system. And he was pretty right. He's like, man, everybody goes to jail. They play the card. They, you know, they, 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 everyone finds God. And uh, man, it was, it was serious. When I got to state prison, everyone who professed Christ, everybody sounded the same. We all was in Bible study. We was in church on Sunday looking for ways to serve. There was a lot of men who wanted to uh, do that so they could make parole. But you really couldn't tell who was who. And everyone would say, the real test is when you get back on them streets and the temptation comes back and the test comes back. And that's, that's when we'll really know. But in here, we can't tell who's who. And it wasn't anyone's uh, business to nitpick at anyone and be like, well, you ain't saved. You ain't saved. You just couldn't tell. But we all went to church together. We went to Bible study together. We prayed together. We would pray on the different cell blocks together. And uh, what I found is when I came home, it was a lot of the same things. In fact, throughout history, the question has often come up, how can you tell if someone truly has been converted? That's been something that comes up in every revival. Throughout history, it comes up um, in different church services. I can't tell you um, how often as a pastor over the years, I've met with so many people who talk about an experience they had at a church or a pastor they met or a Christian author or a professor in a Bible college or a Christian leader of a non-for-profit organization and something happens, it's like, wow, and they didn't know the Lord? Would have never saw that coming. How is it possible that someone could be a pastor or work at a Christian college or work for a non-for-profit in the name of Christ and come to find out don't know Christ? Here's the question that we'll be looking at this morning from the text. How can someone be so religious and not know Jesus? Now, before you go back to saying, aha, that was that person, that was that church I grew up in, all them religious folks, it'd be good to start with examining your own heart. Second Corinthians, when the church was just going crazy in Corinth, here's what Paul told everybody. Second Corinthians 13.5, he says, to examine yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And so my, my heart and my uh, desire for you is that the Spirit would give you clarity. I sense that by the end of today's message, it's not my role to tell you if you know Jesus or not, that um, you will fall into one of four buckets by the end of today's message one, you, I believe the vast majority of you and those listening online will fall into the category of you are passionately pursuing Christ. You love him. You may trip over your own foot. You may struggle some days. You may stumble. You may have doubts and fears, but you love the Lord and you are seeking him. 
even if you're crawling at times. The Lord bless you. Number two, there'll be some of you who will realize, yeah, you know the Lord, but you are lukewarm like the church in Laodicea. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're just here, going through the motions. Some of you, third, will find that you're like the church in Ephesus in Revelations. You serve for Christ, but you have left your first love. You forgot why you're doing what you're doing. And fourth, I suspect that somebody may realize that you're religious and unconverted. The title of this morning's message is Religious and Unconverted. And I want to pray that the Spirit would give us clarity now. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, you said you would not leave us as orphans. So I pray that the Holy Spirit will come now, that he would give clarity, insight, strength, encouragement, conviction. I pray that this would be a divine moment. This wouldn't just be another topic, another sermon, but this deals with eternity. And so I just pray that your word would go forth and not come back void. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 7, and the question that we're asking again is, how can someone be so religious and not know Jesus? Well, there's three observations from this passage that we'll see that can kind of give us a why, but then how do we respond to it? So first thing is this. Here's the reason why. One, religious practices can be rooted in self-love. Religious practices can be rooted in self-love or love of self. Look with me in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV says this now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that is Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come to Jerusalem, they saw that uh, some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, according to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So I just want you to see in verse 1, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and the scribes. The scribes are the Bible translators. They're the ones that know the law back and forth because they translate it. They pass it down. These are the religious leaders and the gatekeepers, the cream of the crop, the seminary students of God's word and his law, and they are questioning Jesus about why his disciples don't align with their traditions and teachings. Here's the main issues of the Pharisees and the scribe. There are religious practices that we hold to, but your disciples don't. We're the pastors, we're the leaders, we're the seminary presidents. Why don't your disciples follow our religious practices, our traditions? The topic of discussion here 
is religious practices, such as, in this case, what makes a person clean spiritually or ceremonially clean. They're talking about washing hands. And so the topic of how to walk through religious practices comes up. Now, I just want to give a definition so we're on the same page. Um, we're talking about being religious. What does, what does it mean? What is, a, what is religion in of itself, a basic definition? Religion is a set of organized beliefs, practices, and structures that are centered around a relationship with God. When we say religion, it's a set of organized beliefs, practices, and structures that are centered around a relationship with God. Now, I want to be careful because when people get frustrated with church, they start bashing religion. I love Jesus. I don't love religion. Well, let me just slow down for a second. Religion is not a bad thing. In fact, the word comes up many times in Scripture. In the book of James, he actually says this true, pure religion is caring for widows and orphans. So the word religion isn't a bad thing. In fact, we find it often in Scripture. We do find that in here, where we believe about God's word, that there is an organized set of beliefs and practices and structures that are centered around our relationship with God. That's why you fast and pray. Why you do that? Because that's a religious practice. Your walk with Christ tells you to do that. Uh, why do you worship? We just sang because following Christ means that's what you do. You sing to him. Um, why do you get baptized? Or why do you take communion? Well, that's a practice that Christ has ordained for us. Why do you read the word? Why do you tithe? And many other things. So be careful of saying, well, I don't care about religion. Well, you can't really follow Jesus. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So be careful. Their question is, though, why don't you practice religion like we do? And look at Jesus' response in verse 6. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart, note there if you're underlining, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is crazy. Jesus quotes, they're asking a question about why don't you practice religion like we do? And instead of answering the question right away, Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13. In that passage in Isaiah 29, if you read the book of Isaiah, God is describing the people of Israel as being so off spiritually, he compares them to, compares them to someone staggering from drunkenness. He says, you're like a drunkard that can't walk straight. That's how off you are. And this is a pattern. If you read through scripture, this is a pattern of God's people. They walk in religious routine and don't know him. You find it in Judges. You find it in Chronicles. It's a pattern. Generation after generation. One generation knows the Lord. The next generation doesn't. They still go through with the routine, but they don't know the Lord. Let me give you an example. I've quoted this passage before, but I want to read it from the New Living Translation. Ezekiel 33, verse 30 through 32. Listen to this. This is the Lord talking to Ezekiel. Son of man, your people talk about you in their houses and whisper about you at the door. They say to each other, come, let's go hear the prophet tell us what the Lord is saying. Let's go to church and hear the preacher. So my people come pretending to be sincere and sit before you. They listen to your words, but they have no intention of doing what you say. Their mouths are full of lustful words, and their hearts only seek after money throughout the week. 
You are very entertaining to them. Sounds like church today. Like someone who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays fine music on an instrument. They hear what you say, but they don't act on it. You're nothing but an entertainment to them. It's like them listening to Beyonce or Adele. Sold out. It's like them going to Millennium Park and listening to a free jazz concert. That's why they come here. They want to be entertained. Now, the question is, why are God's people in Isaiah in that time, why are they so shallow? Why are they so consumed with entertainment? God said, I don't care how much they go on and gather to hear you speak. All they think about during the week is money. And you could, if you just heard what comes out of their mouth, I hear it. Why are they so shallow? Because their leaders don't even know God. <laughs> Jeremiah 2.8, the Lord says this. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? They're not asking and seeking my face. Listen to this. Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Oh, man. Jeremiah 2.8 says, those who handled the law did not know me. It's possible to be appointed by God, be in a certain role, and not even know him. In fact, Jeremiah 2.21 says, the shepherds are senseless and don't inquire of the Lord. They're not led by the Spirit. So they don't prosper and all their flock is scattered. Maybe you didn't have a category for the fact that pastors and leaders could be unsaved. That's been a problem in the church from its foundation. Paul is constantly trying to protect the church from false apostles, false teachers, false leaders. When the leaders don't know God, how will those under their care? You might love entertainment because your pastor loves entertaining you. Jeremiah 3, 5, the Lord's response is, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Notice shepherds after my own heart. They might not be the wisest, the most gifted leaders, but you see my heart coming out of them. That's the distinguishing mark. And they feed you with knowledge, the word, and understanding. They're not dancing around on stage performing. You can get up and clap all you want, but you didn't get nothing. And so what does that mean? It means it's entirely possible to do re regular religious practices and not know God. It's possible to go to church. It's possible to lead a community group or a small group. It's possible to work for a Christian non-for-profit. It's possible to lead worship on Sunday and not know God. In fact, Matthew, thank you, sister, Matthew, this is why Jesus, the most scariest verse in all of Scripture, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22 to 23, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not do mighty works in your name? Stop there. Not just some works, mighty works. You trending on Twitter threads now. And listen to what Jesus said. 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I said I was preaching in your name, casting out demons in your name, doing mighty works in the community in your name, and Jesus like, I never knew you. Think about this, y'all. Don't rush. Think about this. How is it possible to preach in Jesus' name, cast out demons in Jesus' name, do mighty works in Jesus' name, and not be saved or converted? I'll tell you why. Because religious practices can be rooted in self-love and self-worship. Jesus is just a good add-on. This was Judas's problem. He hung out with Jesus every day, and what does it say about Judas? And he loved money. And he could talk all he want, but when the opportunity to get money showed itself, he traded Jesus for money because money was the foundation of his theology. Not Christ crucified, not the Messiah coming, not the same as Peter. Peter and Judas is different. Peter rejected Jesus because he thought he was willing to die with him, and he wasn't. Judas sold him out because he never believed in him in the first place. So much so that when Jesus said, on the night of the Passover, one of you are going to betray me, nobody was like, oh, it's Judas. It said they looked around and said, well, who is he talking about? Got me questioning my salvation. Is it me, Lord? This means you can pray from a selfish heart in Jesus' name. You can preach and teach good lessons in Jesus' name from a heart that desperately wants to be exalted in front of people. You can serve in worship. You can go on the missions team to Puerto Rico. You can be an elder. You can be a deacon. You can start a blog. You can start a podcast. You can brand your Instagram page in the name of Jesus from a self-centered heart. Let me put it to you this way. I have a quote for you. When we walk in self-love, we use God for our glory. When everything's rooted in yourself, you use God for your glory. And so people can't tell. They're like, oh, she loved God. He loves God. Well, the reason you do everything is to be glorified. As soon as something comes for you sacrificing yourself, you don't want to do it. That's so why you go to churches all across America. You can have thousands of people. You can't get nobody serving children's ministry. It costs, children's ministry means die to yourself today. I don't want to do that. I came here to get filled up. It's about me. Notice what Jesus says in verse 7. In vain do they worship me. In vain. Yeah, you sung. Does your heart really love me? Am I the foundation? Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3, 19. He says, their end is destruction. Listen to this. Their God is their belly. Some of your translation says their God is their appetite. What's leading you today? However my appetite feels. And their glory, and they glory in their shame with minds set on Earthly things, see how it translates to Isaiah and Jeremiah? Their God is whatever their desire wants to do today. Can I just ask you an honest question? In your prayer life, 
in your service to Christ, in your, is, is your prayer life, is your service, is your relationship with God centered around how much he can serve you? I mean, I know he serves us. Glory to the Lamb. He brought us from a long place. You come to faith in Christ, the gospel. You gotta, there's got to be some self, sense of self. Well, he did this for me. But true conversion doesn't stay at me. It's I love you because you're beautiful and who you are. Me and Danielle, our marriage wouldn't even be going on right now if it was, I only love you based on what you do for me. So let me ask you again, is your prayer life, your service, your relationship to God, is it all centered around how much he can serve you? You only worship him because he serves you. Basically, he's your servant. That's what he is to you, your servant. Yeah, he washes feet, but that's where your worship comes from. Here you go, Jesus, wash me and I'll worship you. Wash this down here. Is that how you feel? If so, it seems that the relationship is backwards and you're acting like God. That's why Jesus can say, I never knew you. History has shown that you can be deeply religious and unconverted. And this is because religious practices can be rooted in self-love. But here's the second thing. Religious traditions can override God's word. That's a problem. Look at verse 8. Jesus then says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold the tradition of men. So they traded the word of God for traditions and routines that they like because they created them. <laughs> so God's word gets put down. Here's a thought. When tradition is elevated to the level of God's word, the word often takes the backseat. I'll say that again. In churches all over the world, when tradition is elevated to the level of God's word, the word often takes the back seat. So look back in verse 1. Let's look at 1 through 4 again. It says, Now the Pharisees gathered to him and went, uh, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and they saw some of his disciples that they ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Why? holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Notice that it said in verse 4, and there are many other traditions that they observe. And it's not just the Pharisees. Look in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews... And why do they do it? Holding to the tradition of the elders. Notice how everybody follows the leader, just like we saw in Jeremiah. They don't just have one tradition, but they have many traditions. And now the traditions have become the religion. Traditions here tend to be very routine and ritualistic. And now their traditions and their practices are, have become equal with God's word to the point where the Pharisees can't tell the difference and they're grilling Jesus about it. Unhealthy. This past week I was um, in class, I was finishing up my, a degree, and we were looking at revival in Judges and in Second Chronicles and the pattern of um, how uh, evil leaders lead the people astray and how the people love it. And my professor, Dr. Harrod, he said this quote to all of us. He said, a steady diet of unhealthy food creates a desire for more unhealthy food. 
That's what I said. I said, yeah, I'm going to put you in a sermon this Sunday. I'm going to give you the credit. A steady diet of unhealthy food creates a desire for more unhealthy food. Let's make it plain in our language. Meaning if you like wings and chips for breakfast, you're going to want more wings and chips for breakfast. A desire for things that's unhealthy creates a more desire for things that are unhealthy. It's no wonder we nosedive so quick. People who love to exalt tradition above God often value style over substance. It doesn't matter if the lyrics actually said anything about Jesus. It's the way they were sung. It doesn't matter if the preacher actually had us walk through the text. It was just very, it was very entertaining. You got to come back tomorrow. Now, not all traditions are bad. Please hear me. Churches and cultures have traditions of all different varieties. Like, we got a tradition at church where we always close by saying, you are loved. I remember one Sunday we didn't say it, like, four people was like, you didn't say you are loved. It's like, I forgot. I'm sorry. But we often have, it's not, I want you to hear this, like, oh, traditions are bad. But some are. Have you ever noticed when you invite your unsaved friends to church, the first things they bring up is tradition and culture? Hey, you want to come to church with me tomorrow? I don't have nothing to wear. Why are we talking about clothes? I was talking to young men yesterday at Summer Blast, and they started talking about the dress code as soon as we started talking about coming to church. Like, bro, you're not going to a wedding or a funeral. You're going to church. But it's interesting that the world, what they see is the traditions and not Christ. But there are traditions that can be held up in church, and people actually feel like they're in sin because they violated the tradition. Maybe you've been in a church and there's like the holy huddle over here. And this is where the ministers and the deacons and the elites sit. And imagine the, the neighbor you invited coming into church. She gets there early. She's praying to finally meet God. And she says, you know what? I'm not going to sit in the back. I'm going to sit up front. And she sits in the front and then a security team comes up. You can't sit over here. This is where, this is where the uh, ministers sit. And embarrassingly, she gets up feeling embarrassed walking away like she's in sin because she came to church and sat in the wrong seat. And nobody feels anything about it. Yeah, she, she can't sit over there. You see how traditions, now what does Jesus care about? The elite section or the mother who walked in for the first time that was invited from Summer Blast and sat in a seat and got escorted away by security because that's the, the deacon minister section. She couldn't even focus the rest of the service because she's so ashamed and embarrassed because tradition has equated itself with the word of God. When these things take place over the word of God, people no longer are able to tell the difference between traditions and the word, and they feel guilty for breaking either of them. And traditions damage people in the process. Y'all allowed to walk up on the stage? The Ark of the Covenant ain't up here. But maybe you came from a church where you had to walk all the way around for what? Unless you want to get your steps in on your Fitbit. <laughs> I'm not trying to throw shade, but may the Spirit show us how we're butchering people over things that have nothing to do with the Word. <laughs> and then we wonder why people don't want to come in here and it has nothing to do with Christ. They just don't feel like they can live up to the traditions. You told that sister she got to wear a dress all the way down here and she can't wear her jeans? 
or her sweats. In her mind, she got to go shopping at the store to go to church. He feel like he got to get a shirt and tie and a blazer. He ain't going on a job interview. You don't got to put a shirt and tie on to come meet Jesus. The gospel is you ain't as clean as you think. Come as you are. Now imagine if we applied that during summer blast to everybody in the community. Nobody would have came yesterday. Why are you dressed like that? Why are you looking like that? Let's be careful before we look back at the past and think about the Pharisees not realize what kind of culture we are bringing. But notice how the Pharisees were so caught up in their traditions of how it actually was leading the people astray. Look at verse 9. Well, back up verse 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let me explain what Jesus is talking about there. The Pharisees, well, let me just back up even more. In the Ten Commandments, the one commandment with the promise was honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. The Pharisees made a tradition that said anything that's financial or physical, if you have to care for your parents, that you would normally give to an aging parent or a sick parent, you don't have to give it to them if you just say it's Corbin. And the word Corbin means devoted to God. So if I said, man, this money I had in my bank account, mom, I know I was going to give it to you, but I already that's for the Lord. I devoted it to him already. You can get out of giving that to your parents. What the Jews would do is they would often say, oh, this is Corbin, just so they can get out of helping their parents. And Jesus said, that's not in the word. I told you to honor your mother and father. You can't uh, make up a tradition that gives you a loophole like you're trying to cut out of taxes to not care for your mom and dad. I said, oh, well, mom, that's, that's Corbin. I'm, I'm, I'm giving that to the temple, even though you know you aren't. When your heart isn't centered in God and you love man-made traditions more than the word of God, you will easily harm others in order to get what you want. And some of you sit here this morning, you're wounded because you've been slaughtered by traditions. Many churches and many Christians love their traditions more than Jesus. And so it's possible to be religious and unconverted because it's possible to be in love with tradition more than Jesus and religious traditions can override the word of God. That's what we see happening here. They're more protective over their traditions than the word. Have you ever experienced something like that? Ruthless with our traditions. But you can't even remember what text you looked at that Sunday. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you more in love with your routine and your traditions than Jesus? You got your whole system that you get up, do a certain routine. Are you more in love with style than substance? You care more about the way the word is delivered to you than the word itself. I often say, man, a true Christ follower, we could just sit here and open up a book and read. Pick anyone, and a true converted soul will say yes and amen. 
Go ahead, just, let's just read the book of Ephesians for service. Let's just read through the gospel of John for service because I, I want to hear Jesus' voice. Or am I coming here because I like the way the preacher articulates his voice to me? So do you love Jesus or the voice of the preacher? According to what God was saying to Ezekiel, they love the way you entertain them. They don't plan to do what you say. Like, they're going to leave church, and they're going to continue cursing and carrying on doing whatever. Religious and unconverted. Religious practices can be rooted in self-love, and religious traditions can override God's word. Well, now the question is, well, how do we overcome such a deceitful heart? And how do we overcome falsehood? Here's the third and final point. Religious practices must flow from a transformed heart. Let me say that again. The religious practices that we do must flow from the inside, from a heart that's been converted and transformed, and it flows outside. Look at Jesus in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you. I want you to listen to Jesus speaking to you. Hear me, all of you, and understand this. There is nothing outside a person that, going, uh, that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Well, what do you mean by that? Verse 18, he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not uh, his heart, but, by, uh, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Amen. They could finally eat crab legs now. <laughs> Gumbo, shrimp. Verse 20, he said, what comes out of a person, out of them is what defiles them. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. They had no concept for heart religion. That's why Jesus, remember when they talked about adultery? And it was like, well, I've never committed adultery. And Jesus was like, if you looked at a woman lustfully, you committed adultery in your heart. Because you think everything is about external the heart is where the seat of everything is. I want to just give you a quick definition. We're talking about heart. We're not talking about the physical heart that's beating in your chest. I have it here for you on the screen. Your heart is your will, desires, motives, and affections. It's your will. When he says, uh, follow me, seek me with your heart, it's with your will, it's with your desires. Your heart is the seat of your motives. That's what we're getting down to. It's not what are the religious practices, it's why are you doing them? Why do you want to do that? To exalt yourself or Christ? Now, because of the fall, because of the garden, because of sin, our hearts are stained by sin and easily lead us astray before Christ. And we still have the flesh afterwards. This is why Jeremiah, going back, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's like a rhetorical question. It's saying you can't understand it. 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The heart is so sick that when you say that, the people are like, nothing wrong with me. Exhibit A. Ezekiel 36, 6. God has it and say, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. That's conversion. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh that's sensitive to me. This is what happens when someone confesses their sins, repents, and turns to faith by Christ, believing in his finished work on the cross. They now have a new desire that are motivated by a new heart. It's called being converted. Jesus calls it being born again. He had a whole conversation with Nicodemus and said, yeah, unless you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And he said to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law and you don't understand this? So what are you teaching to people? Self-help? A works-based faith? No, it means to be alive in Christ. And now, not only do we have a new heart that has new desires, new affections, he also places his Holy Spirit within us, which is why we can now be sensitive to his spirit. His spirit has been talking to you your whole life. Why was it it went through one ear and out the other? Because your heart wasn't changed. But once he transforms your heart, you now have the ability to be sensitive to his spirit and his voice. You now can walk in the spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh and try not to quench him. Yet there's a reality that even though internally in our inner being we have been converted, there's a new affection, we still have the flesh. But if you have a new heart, you're constantly waging war against the flesh. Paul constantly says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. That doesn't mean you earn salvation. It means you're trying to die to self like Jesus told us. The Christian life isn't you trying to stir it up and be stronger. It's you dying to self and letting the spirit live out the life of Christ through you. Ephesians 4, 17, 18, Paul recognizes the tension of this new conversion and still being having the flesh. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In this sense, he's talking about uh, unconverted Christians. Listen, in the futility of their mind, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. They don't even understand how the life of God works because of the ignorance that's in them. Why, Paul? Due to their hardness of heart. Their heart hasn't been changed. They haven't experienced conversion. So no matter how much you talk to your boss, your cousin, who, whatever, they're not going to get it. That's why you pray when the gospel goes forth, God, soften her heart. Soften her heart. I mean, soften his heart. Make him receptive. 2 Timothy 2.22. Paul says to young Timothy, the young pastor, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from what? A pure heart. A heart that's been changed and converted. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water baptism. You got baptized because you're saying what's going on on the outside has happened on the inside. That's what baptism is. It doesn't get you into heaven. 
It tells a world that Jesus has transformed my inner being and my soul. There's a new creation in Christ in me. Yes, I may struggle. Yes, I may stumble. But I got new affections that I didn't have before. And the way he has washed me inside, I'm getting baptized to get washed outside to publicly declare a testimony of what's happened to me. I've been converted. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And one of my favorite passages in Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Can't even sense his presence without the conversion. Beloved, the state of your heart, your inner being, is what determines true conversion. True religion flows from a new heart that's been given by Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So be careful of putting on a stock in how good someone can sing or preach. Do you see the light of Christ coming out of her? And when they fall, because we all have the flesh, do they repent? And repentance isn't just, oh, I'm not doing this again. It means if I have to go make a situation right, if I have to call my dad or my brother or my sister and ask for forgiveness, if I have to walk across the room to someone in the church, if I have to give back what I stole, what I've taken, repentance requires action. You can talk all you want. You can preach all you want. You can work at whatever organization all you want. I told you, I remember when I was at Moody, I met young men who came to Moody and found out they didn't know Jesus. Like, got to seminary. And was like second semester, third semester, was like, I don't know Christ. I just knew routine. Parents, give wiggle room for your kids to take initiative. Yes, lead them to the word, teach them the word. But give them room to take initiative. I didn't want Ben and Judah to get baptized until I knew that they knew that they knew Jesus. How did I know that? When I was walking past their room and I see Ben in there getting after the book of Genesis and I ain't telling him to do it. And he grilling me about what's happening in Genesis. When I'm going upstairs and I hear Judah in the shower singing, great is thy faithfulness, and he's six. I'm like, man, you don't sing like that. And I mean, like, in, with tears. Here's the point. Is there something in you that beats hard after God? I'm not talking about religion and show. And would you be willing to lay down whatever for him? Because he's that precious to you. He said, go here, go there. It might be hard, but you're like, I'll do it, Lord. Christ followers, when there's something hard you can say to them, would you do it for the Lord? And they'll, they'll pause on that. Hmm. I'm done with her. I'm done with him, man. Would you, for the, for the sake of the Lord, would you do it? Mm. Man, let me go pray about that. Andrew Murray, former pastor, theologian and author, says this, may not a single moment of my life be spent outside of the life, light, love, and joy of God's presence. Is that your statement? And not a moment without the entire surrender of myself as a vessel to him. Do you see yourself as consecrated unto the Lord? Set apart, holy unto him. I don't belong to myself. Paul said, you do not belong to yourself. 
For you were bought with a price. It's not your job. It's not your paycheck. It's not your car. It's not your house. It's not your plans. Can you say, I am consecrated unto the Lord. I belong to him. That's how a converted heart speaks. Hearts that loves entertainment just wants to be filled of themselves. I'm here for a word and I'm gone. Because I'm here for me, not you. May not a single moment of my life be spent outside the light, love, and joy of God's presence, not his hand. I want you, God. That's why in Matthew 7, he could say, I never knew you. You did everything in my name, but you didn't want me. You didn't love my name. You wanted me to heal you from cancer and heal you from that. You, you used my name and just like, a, this is why it should get answered. That's what in Jesus' name means. This is why it should get answered. But do you love his name? Do you tremble at his name? Do you tremble at his name? Demons tremble at his name, but you don't. They hear the name of Jesus, they collapse. You hear the name of Jesus, you're like, well, let me pull out my request. Here's my list. Wash my feet, and I'll sing. Can you say this with a clear heart? Is this the pulse of your heart? Let me just ask you this question as we close. What was the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Which bucket did you fall into? Are you passionately pursuing him, even though you're tripping over your own feet? You struggle, you struggle some days with doubts, fears, you have to repent, but you know that you know with tears in your eyes, man, I'm trying, I'm seeking him. Is that you? Or number two, are you like the church in Laodicea? You're lukewarm, not hot, not cold, just here. Are you like the church in Ephesus who said the right things, who were on mission, who knew right doctrine from wrong doctrine, who knew Christ, but you left your first love. I'm not the reason why you do what you do in your life no more. You think it is because you quote in scripture, but if you really searched your heart for the motives of why you're doing what you're doing and why you want the things you want, it's because you want to glorify yourself. Have you left your first love? And lastly, maybe you're here today and you realize that you're religious and unconverted. Well, I want to lead you in a prayer because you can't listen to the Lord and what he's saying to the Pharisees and the Jews in chapter 7 and just walk away casually. And so I want to give a time. We have about 6 to 10 minutes, whatever. I want to pray Psalm 85 over you, which is a psalm of revival. And the altar is open. If you want to come up here, nobody judges you. If you want to come up here and kneel and pray, if you want to sit right where you are, you're able to do that. If you can't get up, you could put your hands out like this. But I want you to know, don't worry about what nobody else thinks in here. That's actually probably part of the problem, is that your faith is built on what everybody else thinks. So you're free to come up here and kneel if you want to. But I want to give a time right now. Would you bow your heads right where you are? If you want to have a fresh consecration, God, I, man, I, I love you. I, I'm, not, I'm not this religious and unconverted person, but I will confess that I've left my first love. And even right now, I may be too embarrassed to get up because I'm worried about what other people think, and that's what kept me from your presence. Right where you are. In humility, not to me, stop looking around at everybody else. That's your problem. You're worrying about what everybody else is doing. You know you, could, you might see Jesus face to face before the night's over, right? Yeah. Like, it's not like you're guaranteed to make it home when you leave here. Yeah. 
So right where you are, when you just start praying this right now, Lord, search my heart. You said my heart is deceitful. Who can know it? God, you can know it. You can turn around and bow right in the seat that you're at. You can turn right around right where you are. You can lay prostrate. This is about you and the Lord right now. This ain't about who's seeing you. Psalmist says, search my heart and know me. Try me. Know my thoughts. Search my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way within me. Do you know when you study revival in history, there's no revival that started without first confession of sin? What is the sin that's getting in the pathway of you experiencing God's presence afresh? And maybe if you want to, as an act of worship, you can come to the altar and lay that here and say, Lord, I am laying this here. Lord, I confess I've held on to this bitterness for too long. And it's quenching your spirit. Lord, I've let this unforgiveness take so much of a deep root in my heart. And it's killing me, God. It's, it's hindering my walk with you. I want to lay it down in front of you. I'm not trying to be just some emotions or emotional, God. I really want to bring it to you. God, my pride, I see it. I'm very proud. I'm very stubborn. I think I know everything. Psalm 85 says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored fortunes to Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. My sister, my brother, your sins are covered in Christ. But will you bring that besetting sin before him so that he can fill you afresh? Verse 6 said, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Would you plead with God, God, I need you to revive me. If I'm not doing what I'm doing out of the overflow of your spirit, then I'm, I'm functioning with style but no substance. I'm going through the routine which may be right and biblical, but it's not rooted in Christ and God, I'll be led astray. Ask him right now, God, revive me. And for some of you, pray right now, God, my heart is so hard, I don't even want to pray to you. Say that to him. I, don't, I feel nothing right now, and I know I should. Show us your steadfast love, verse 7 says, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But do not let them turn back to folly, verse 8 says. Say, God, help me to not run back into that mess, to not run back into that pattern, to not run back to that thing. 
For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to foolishness. Talk to him right now. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that they may, their glory may dwell in the land. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. God will bless God. We come to you right now. We confess our pride, our ego, our self-centeredness exposed to us anywhere in our lives, God, where we are doing things in Jesus' name but from a selfish heart and being too blind to see it. Help us to examine our motives, God, why we want to do what we do. God, cleanse us. We sung it early, earlier. Purify us. You are a refiner. Refine us by fire. God, test us. Know our hearts, God, we collapse in your presence. God, we don't want to worship your hand and then see you face to face and say, well, I thought I knew you. And it's like, no, you knew my hand. You didn't know me. And so, God, we repent this morning. Repent for how we treat one another. As your body, how we gossip about one another, slander one another, mutilate one another. Shame one another. God, that's not of your spirit. God, we don't want to be lukewarm. We don't want to leave our first love. We want to say with our brother Andrew Murray, may not a single moment of my life be spent outside of the light, the love, and the joy of God's presence. God, may we at Chicago West love your presence more than your gifts, because you are the gift. God, may we completely surrender to you afresh. I pray that those who came and collapsed at the altar, God, and those who uh, wanted to but couldn't get up, God, would they say today, I am consecrating myself unto the Lord. I am a vessel for him. It's not about my life anymore, what I want. Paul said, I have been crucified. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God, may that be our testimony. So God, we have now spoken to you in confession and in pleading. Thank you for listening to Chicago West Sunday Service. Join us next week.